Father, Lord, into our time again tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your great love for us. Thank you for the power of your word. And as challenging as it can be to receive and understand, Lord, you give us that grace and your Holy Spirit to understand it. Go before me now in this talk and uh, may the words of my heart, the meditations of my heart and my mouth, Lord, be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, we're going to think back through lesson nine uh, from Romans 9, 14 to 10, 21. So if you have your note page, I actually noticed I neglected to change the top heading there. It still says, I think, lesson eight, and it's the wrong passage, but we are in lesson nine. I'm reviewing lesson nine, and it'll be from Romans 9, 14 to 10, 21. We'll be to write notes there, and if you want to fix that little <laughs> that little area there, you can, you can fix that. Um, but I had some fun writing out day four for you because I uh, we talked about the whole two truths and a lie idea. And so I thought I'd open my talk today with a couple of truths and a lie about myself. And then I'll close uh, and reveal. See if you can guess. I'll, 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 give you the, I'll give you the three right now. You can think about it. This was on day four. And I asked you to kind of think about that idea of two truths and a lie and how, how that might apply to how people perceive God. And so here's, here's three about me and you can think about it and don't go googling it and get distracted I, it, it won't show i'm sure in any searches but uh here we go um number one i i led um nature survival walks in the wilderness and uh, number two i've uh, written and recorded two albums of uh, worship songs with amy grant and number three i was presented uh, with the key to a city in mexico one of those. So it's two truths, two truths and, a lie. and a lie. I led survival nature walks through the wilderness. I wrote and recorded two albums of worship with Amy Grant. And I was presented with a key to a city in Mexico. Some of you might know if you know any of my story at all, but shh, and we'll wait to the end. I'll reveal at the end. And uh, if my Aunt Lena is listening, she might be wondering, oh my goodness, I did not know that about my niece. We'll see <laughs> if she guesses it correctly as well as we go through. All right. So here we go. After these rhetorical questions that Paul asks and answers, we have a lot of hope as we've been kind of heading into this passage. He's asked, who will bring a charge against us? No one. Who will condemn us? No one. Who will separate us? Nothing. No one, right? And we have been in this hopeful kind of momentum working up through. And then as we began chapter nine, you feel Paul really switch gears and he pours out his heart for his brothers and his sisters, his fellow Jews. And we identify with him and that, that his heartbreaking because many of us have loved ones that we care a lot about who are not receiving Christ as their Messiah. And it weighs on us and we wonder and we ask and we, we identify a lot with what Paul even says there. But Paul lays it out really clear and this whole three chapter chunk of Romans from chapter nine all the way through to the end of what you'll be doing in this next lesson, chapter 11, Paul lays out this promise that God has had this plan that God has had for Israel, but that Israel is rejecting the promise. They're missing the plan and the point, and that God worked his plan based on his promise, not just through a bloodline, not just through Abraham, not just through failed and failing people. And the focus has been on God and God's promise and his choice to move through a family line, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then not through uh, Esau. And so we wrapped up the previous lesson, lesson eight, with these heavy words, this final passage, this final few verses. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And I don't know about you, but honestly, there's just no way to read that in my mind and go, oh, that's nice. Oh, put that on another bumper sticker. That's a good verse. Let's just make pillows out of that one, right? No, 
we read it and we think that cannot mean what that says that where's the greek give me the bible hub right this, this can't be right and so i want to kind of move in on that because it's there and it is right and it is it does say what it says and so I want us to really think about this whole approach that Paul has been taking with this question and answer that he's been doing throughout all of Romans, really. And he does it really on almost every letter he writes. But Paul has asked and answered questions about us. He's going to bring charges, no one, condemn, no one, separate, no one. And then he, now he moves in and really he has a question about God or a question toward God or really a charge against God. And we know we're safe from any charges, we're safe from condemnation, we're safe from being separated, but what about God? And it might be unthinkable, it might seem like that's unthinkable, but honestly, in that moment of our own biggest why, our own questions that we've had in our life, or if like I had you engage in the study, maybe you're not that questioning person, but maybe you have engaged with people and you have to try to think like them and try to help them work that through. Because when we ask why in life's hardest moments, it doesn't end with just why question mark, does it? It's always why God, even atheists might even slip up, you know, and say, why would God allow this? Oh, that's right, I don't believe in him, right? But we don't just say why, do we? We do have a sense there's something bigger going on. We say, why would God let fill in the blank? happen and at the heart of that hurt is really wondering if in all that we're seeing everything that we're experiencing all that we're watching happening in this world at the heart of that hurt is really a, a question that we've been asking since we were toddlers <laughs> and it's that's not fair how many of you have been around kids long enough to know that you never had to sit them down and teach them how to say those three words together there's actually three things that kids say that we never really had to teach a kid to say number one no <laughs> no one sits their kid down right and asks them to openly defy them by saying no number two is mine that's mine right as the kid reaches and grabs for something and number three is that's not fair right you know, and at the center of the gospel, I want us to really think about this. At the center of the gospel is the answer to all three of those little statements that we make as soon as we're able to start sensing the world around us and speaking to it, right? Because we wouldn't have it deeply embedded in the sense of who we are, that idea of no or mine or fair or not fair, if there wasn't a yes and if there wasn't an hour and if there wasn't justice, and only in the reality of our creator, can any of this even be resolved. So Paul anticipates the pushback to the truth bomb that he has dropped. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And anticipates us saying no, or mine, in other words, uh, my my God wouldn't act like that. I have a definition of what mine is, right? Or that's not fair. And how many of you were like me reading passages like we read in the last couple of lessons had some of that sensibility of like, really? Is this really how God works? That's not fair. That doesn't seem right, right? So when we move into this passage, we see that Paul instead of easing the tension for us, you know, like he drops that, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and instead of just easing it up afterwards and bringing in some nice fluffy, yeah, but it's all great in the end verse, he actually tightens the tension. He actually increases the tension with the reminder to us all of exactly who we're dealing with. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? That's not fair, right? That's that question. And he answers it, absolutely not. For he says to Moses, and whenever Paul or any of the New Testament writers refer to the name Moses, they're referring to him as an individual and how God worked through Moses. But Moses as a name represents the Old Testament as Abraham represents the lineage. 
Elijah represents prophets and prophecy, but Moses represents the Old Testament. So naming Moses is naming the entire Old Testament, basically, for a Jewish audience, especially. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul is addressing the Jews of his day, and he's uh, he's correcting some false perceptions that they likely had, and probably that even us today would have as well. Number one, that every descendant deserves the benefit of bringing God's word. Except that the truth is that God only selected a remnant through whom he would bring his word. And next, every descendant deserves eternal life just on the basis of being of Israel. But no one is based, no one's salvation is based on their nationality. There is therefore now no Jew or Greek. That's always been the case, always been the case. All right, so nations and individuals that make up those nations who oppose God are gonna remain under the curse, whatever your nationality is. And we see that illustrated by Edom or Esau, who's a direct descendant of Isaiah, um, Isaac himself. So Paul lays this out. And what's interesting about this exact situation from which he quotes that passage, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, is that actual circumstance in which God said that was, was when he showed mercy to Israel, when he probably could have just been obliterate them and be just in obliterating them for what they had just done. Because Paul references here this encounter that Moses has with God back from Exodus chapter 32 and 33, and this perfect historical example of when God was merciful to Israel, when they deserved to be destroyed for their unfaithfulness. Why? What had they been doing? Oh, nothing. Just making a false god out of gold <laughs> that the Egyptians had given them when they left Egypt. <laughs> now let's just throw it in the bat and see what comes up. What? Yeah, cow. Well, gotta worship it, right? Okay, so that is what happened. That's when he says this, right? And, and they obviously, you know, if you know the story, they get a little bit of punishment going on there as well. But this example actually also parallels Moses' behavior, his Christ-like response for Israel, just like Paul had done in the opening of chapter 9. Because Moses said in chapter 32 of Exodus, forgive their sin, God. If not, blot me out. Just like Paul said, I wish that I would go to hell so that my fellow Jews would not. And certainly God can choose to save whomever he is pleased to save. Right? Scripture teaches us that God is inclined to the humble. That's who he wants to save. But this passage is in reference to God showing mercy to unfaithful Israel so that he can fulfill his original promise to them, even though they deserve condemnation, right? So that makes this next point all the more clear. So then it doesn't depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy, right? That it refers to the fulfillment of God's promise to bring his word despite Israel's unfaithfulness. We see that in Romans chapter three. And the promise depends on God, the merciful God, not on the faithfulness, willing and, and exerting of Abraham or his descendants. Because we see over and over and over again, a lack of faithfulness, right? And so that, that's where the focus is because we see that Abraham willed and he exerted, he had the desire in the flesh to go ahead of God's plan. And what did, what did Abraham do? Do you remember the story? <laughs> he had a son through Hagar, mm -hmm. right? And Paul in Galatians, um, he actually uses that whole story to symbolically represent the covenant of law and works because Abraham has a son through the slave. When he wasn't supposed to, he should have had a son through the free woman. And so God, by his mercy, provides Isaac through the free woman, Sarah, who Paul uses to represent the covenant of grace uh, by faith, right? And so we have this big picture that God 
God sees this whole plan going forward and knows that Abraham has uh, brought forth a son through it, out of slavery, right? What he should not have done. He should have waited for God's plan. And he still allows him to have the son Isaac, right? So we saw in the understanding of what it means to that Jacob I love and Esau I hated is this covenant choice moving forward between these two lines, not hatred, like we would think of it in the sense of like hating broccoli or whatever, things like that, right? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may demonstrate my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So in the same way that God hardens the already rebellious will of Pharaoh, and that's an important point. It's not like Pharaoh woke up and the birds were twittering and he was giving praise to the one true God. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, big mean bully God decides to harden poor innocent Pharaoh's heart. Okay. No, Pharaoh already had a rebellious, idolatrous heart. It was already hardened. And uh, in order for God to be able to accomplish his will and to give us, actually to give us Passover, which then also becomes a picture of Christ and his sacrifice, God basically stiffens the resolve of Pharaoh to remain in the state that he already was in. That's what that means when he hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't come in swooping out of nowhere, like I said, and harden some poor guy's heart who didn't deserve to be hardened. He was already hardening his own heart. And God strengthened is what that Hebrew word actually means. So God's power and goodness was displayed then also in, we're going to say mercying, so we can kind of be parallel. So hardening and mercying unfaithful Israelites in the day of Moses and hardening unfaithful Israelites in the day of the Messiah. We, we see that moving forward is when we get all the way to Messiah. All right. So then God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. And what I want us to see here is the difference between judicial hardening and capricious hardening. So capricious is the willy nilly. I'm going to harden you and I'll harden you. And I don't know you capricious, just no apparent reason for it. And then there's judicial. This is based on God's justice. This is based on God making judgment here, a judicial hardening, all right? To, to serve a purpose, to make a point, to make even an actual illustration like he did. When Abraham had his child with Hagar, the slave woman, God uses that then to teach us what, it's, what ends up happening when we engage in that kind of slavery behavior instead of submitting our life to God. And, and when he uh, allows Abraham to have a son or has Abraham a son with Isaac, he uses that as a picture for us. So everything that we see, and Paul does it so beautifully throughout uh, scripture, is, is helping us to see the story and how it all points and paints the picture to, to Christ. And God uses all that. So sometimes God's will fulfills his promise by showing Israelites mercy, but his word never fails. And sometimes God will fulfill his promises by hardening Israel, but his word never fails. God chooses who he's going to have mercy on to what? Make his name great. Why? Because that's the best hope for us. And so God's not a conceited bully who wants everybody's attention because conceited bullies are narcissists. They just do it for themselves and their own self-gratification. The reason why God does what he does is always to make his name great because in the making of his name great, we are blessed. See, God didn't harden someone's heart to the so that nobody, less people would get to know him. And God doesn't mercy people so that only a few people get to know him. God hardens and God mercies, right? Mm -hmm. So that the mat, more and more and more people will hear. It's never to the exclusion. It's always to the inclusion. It's always to the hope that more people will come to know him, right? So those that are judicially hardened or cut off are, listen, they're not born in that condition, but they have grown hardened over years of rebellion. Paul speaks to this at the end of 
of Acts chapter 28, basically, when he said, that's it. That's it. I'm going to the Gentiles. You know, I'm, I'm fulfilling my mission. Go back to that final speech that he gives in the end of Acts chapter 28. Why? Because they are cut off for their unbelief. And we'll get that um, in chapter 11 also. And the hope of the apostle is that they're going to be grafted back in. Right? And we're going to get that in chapter 11 as well. All right. So this whole idea of hardening, um, again, is not something that God just like plops on top of people. When we, when you get a disease like scleroderma, which is where we, the Greek is from that sclera, hardening the derma, skin, hardening of the skin, that's, you just got a disease. That's not God like, I'm going to harden your skin, right? That's not God like capriciously picking out on people. But the idea of hardening is always God's judicial hardening. And as hard as it, <laughs> challenging, I should use that word, said, as challenging as it is us to hear that, we always, always, always have to read portions of scripture in the full context of the whole counsel of God. And what happens is people whose hearts are already hardened and already inclined to push away and resist, read verses like this and say, well, I, that's not my kind of God. I don't want that kind of religion. So they were already inclined to push back, already hurting. And so we, we bear a, a weight of that in the church, that we're not teaching well, and we're not engaging well, we're not helping people and drawing them in. So we do need to do that. But we need to pray, God, please keep their hearts soft towards you and not, and not hard. Um, so that's, a that's a tough one, especially as we deal with it on a personal level. I know it is. All right, so Paul moves in on this a little bit more. And he says, well, then you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has ever resisted his will? And that's a good point. How could God blame anyone? Because no one can resist God's will. And this is what we would call a very challenging passage. <laughs> God find fault, right? Because again, we have to take this in counsel with the entire word of God. That's why I asked you to define God. We are constantly going back to what do you know to be true about God? What do you know to be true about God? Whenever you find something that says, hey, don't move in on that. There's a reason why that's poking your heart and it's not because God's wrong. <laughs> and so we have to go back to what do we know to be true about God? All right. You here, an Israelite hardened to accomplish God's promise will say to me, an Israelite, Paul, shown mercy to accomplish God's promise. That's Paul talking. He was shown mercy. Paul over and over and over again said, the worst of all sinners, him, he calls himself, right? So why are we to blame if God's will is being fulfilled, right? So as the apostle already talked, Paul already talked in chapter three, verse five, this is a man-made argument and it reveals a heart that's become callous in rebellion. Otherwise, they might see, they might hear, they might understand, and they might repent. And we're going to get into a lot more of that also, and you'll loop and circle back in on that idea in uh, chapter 11. I hope you'll enjoy as you move in on that day. Um, Paul then says, <laughs> okay, right? Indeed, who are you? <laughs> a mere human being to talk back to God. And I want to pause here for just a minute, just to kind of encourage us to say, this isn't the point at which we throw up our hands and push back on people who are asking heartfelt questions about God. And we don't say back to them right away, well, who are you? Okay, that's not, don't do that. <laughs> it's not good discipleship. Yes, eventually get there, because that is, that is a truth. But maybe we're not going to open with that. Um, so bury that lead, perhaps, as they, as they would say. But but indeed, who are you? Right? That a humble heart can ask that. Right? And a humble heart can hear that. A mere human being to talk back to God. And he gives this absurd example of what is molded, looking up at the molder, you know, and you visualize it. It's almost cartoonish, the way Paul describes it. Why have you made me like this? You know, like a little ant. <laughs> looking up at a, at, a, at a person, right, and say, you know, I'm crawling here. <laughs> okay, squish. You know, <laughs> so the lump of hardened clay represents Israel, has grown callous in the rebellion, and they're now being remolded into two different kinds of vessels 
the unfaithful Israelites remolded by means of the signs from Jesus Christ, the incarnate Messiah himself, to bring the word. And the unfaithful Israelites remolded by means of judicial hardening to accomplish the great purpose of bringing redemption on the cross. Why? Because we saw when we looked back at how Christ ended up on the cross, who was involved in putting him there? Me, personally. Christ himself, Judas, the Greeks who represent me, us, all the Jews. So this is a uh, team effort, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right? Why? Because it has to accomplish the grand glorious purpose of God, making his name great. Why? Because that's our best hope. That's our best hope if that is accomplished. And so God wants to move forward that, that agenda. Verse 21, has the potter no right to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for special use and one for ordinary use? A vase and a trash can. Sure he could. Now, as with any word picture, as with any analogy, we don't move in on that and say, God, I mean, the, the Gentiles trash cans? That's basically what that word means, you know, ordinary use. No, that's not what that means. He's, he's just giving an illustration. I mean, people have pressed in on that. And uh, I, I've heard some bad, uh, in, on a unfortunate teaching, uh, basically saying, you know, that, you know, he's likening Gentiles to trash cans or people who aren't part of his will at that point, um, you know, deserving of being filled with trash and whatnot. That's not at all what he's saying. So let's not take that there. He's just saying the potter has the right. The potter makes a choice. That's what he's saying. You can make whatever you want out of whatever you're making. Verse 22. But what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience and hasn't he the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he does that? Yeah, he can do that. And again, this is another one of those, hey, prepared for destruction, objects of wrath, that's kind of mean. Really? He's preparing them for destruction? Well, he's not preparing them for destruction in the same way you prepare your child for school. You're tying their shoes, you're going to help. <laughs> You know, putting on their jacket, tightening up their tire, getting them ready for church, Easter Sunday, getting them all dressed up. You're preparing them for church, preparing them for this. That's not what this is talking about. He's not like, I'm getting it all prepared so you can go to hell. God's not like that. For starters, hell was not created for humans. Hell was created for the demons and the angels, fallen angels. That was hell was created. People who, who reject God will join them. Why? Because they chose to join them. Not because God flicked them in, right? So this isn't the idea of being prepared for destruction. It's the idea of back to God's judicial hardening, okay? You're going to move in on being hardened. Watch out. You're going to get stuck like that. You know you've heard your parents say that, and you've said it to your kids like that before too. Don't hold your face like that for too long. It's going to get stuck like that. Don't stare like that. If someone slaps you on the backside, you're going to be frozen like that forever. And it's a biblical principle, really. Proverbs says it like this. If a stick-necked man who refuses rebuke will suddenly be destroyed beyond repair. Okay? So just as God manifests himself through Pharaoh's judicial hardening, he does the same thing through Israel's judicial hardening. He's the potter. He can do that. God patiently put up with Israel even in their stubborn rebellion, so as to be cut off or given over or prepared for destruction. It doesn't mean that's their final end. There is a remnant, and we're going to get big time into that in this next passage. All right? So verse 23, and what if he's willing, this is that parallel idea, and what if he's willing to make known the wealth of his glory on the objects of mercy that he is prepared beforehand for glory? right? So again, God's glory is always the point, always the point. And even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. In other words, we are objects of mercy, the ones that he has this remnant pulled out, and also from the Gentiles. So those listening to Paul's voice, and you and I right now, having our hearts softened toward God, even during the times that we are challenged and we're conflicted and we're concerned, 
we still, okay, God, I know you got this. I don't quite get it all, but I do trust you throughout this. And the promise that Abraham, that was made to Abraham to bless all the families through the earth, coming of the Messiah, right, and his message, it's now being fulfilled through the hardening and the mercying of Israel. And the vessels that are prepared for mercy are all the families of the earth. Why? Because that's what God promised in Genesis 12 to Abraham. God had promised his blessing from the very beginning. And Paul cites from Romans um, 10, 13, what was already said in Joel 3, uh, 2, 32, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the ultimate promise, right? So he says in Hosea, and I will call those people who were not my people, my people. And I will call her who was unloved, my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So the story of Hosea is crazy. You want to read a crazy prophet story? Read Hosea. Good luck with that. That's a good one to try to teach Sunday school lessons too. Um, so God has this prophet Hosea. And uh, he was commanded to marry a prostitute, and he does. And this sets up, and God makes it very clear. You know, some prophecies and some ideas are never explained, and we're like, well, I think that might mean, you know, what's a wheel within a wheel? We try to figure it out, right? But this one God, like, lays out from the very beginning. This is a picture of my relationship with unfaithful Israel and um, Israel's broken relationship with God. Israel had been chosen. Israel had been loved by God. And yet they remain unfaithful. They continually give themselves over to idolatry. And so just as Hosea um, redeems this estranged wife, this prostitute wife of his, and he seeks to constantly have a, a relationship with her, God is doing the same thing. He is promising to redeem Israel, renew their relationship with him. And the story of Hosea and his wife, lovely name Gomer, is a unforgettable picture of God's strong love, his unending love, his reckless love, if you will, um, for his covenant people. And that original context, the author acknowledges um, God's genuine love for, for Israel, despite their rebellion and the whole thing, which Paul totally echoes um, throughout all of, of Romans, especially in this passage right here, chapters 9 and even through into chapter 11, God told Hosea to call um, his child Lo-Ami, which means not my people, but God promised that was going to be temporary, okay? So here's what's interesting about how Paul uses this, because the Gentiles were not my people in that sense. And if we read Ephesians chapter two, especially when we see that because of Christ and the mystery of Christ, the Gentiles are brought in now. We weren't part of God's people. We weren't part of his chosen. But guess who else wasn't my people at, for this time? The Israelites, they weren't his people. They weren't acting like a married couple should be acting, right? So it's got like this dual meaning going on. People that were not formally known as his people are now benefiting from the entire redemptive plan you know, of God. So Paul's using the scripture like he always has been to continue to help us to think through, oh my gosh, this has been God's plan um, all along. And then he brings in Isaiah and he says in verse 27, and Isaiah cries out on behalf of Israel, though the number of the children of Israel are as the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved for the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth completely and quickly. Just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of heaven's armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. What is this a reminder of? God's mercy. Because they deserved to be annihilate, annihilated like Sodom and Gomorrah, and God relented. God did not. Regardless of the Israelites' unfaithfulness throughout all those generations, God has always, always, always saved a believing remnant from complete physical destruction so that he can do what? Carry out his plans for Israel. Why? Because that's the only salvation we'll have because it's going to come through Israel. If Israel had received what they deserved, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? Thank God none of us receive what we deserve if we have Christ. Amen? Amen. <laughs> so the number of the descendants of Israel, count, countless is the sand, you know, and the sea. He says, only those Israelites who, like the Gentiles, 
who pursue righteousness by faith are going to attain it. So what should we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, even though pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain it. So this is the this is the passage that I asked you to consider the possibility that you might be on the receiving end in a good way of someone else being hardened. The hardening of Israel benefited you. How? You got Jesus. <laughs> That's how you benefited. Now, on a micro level, yes, you're going to be benefiting maybe from the hardening of people in our lives and the way that God works in, in all the aspects of our life um, and our family relationships, our friends, our work, and things like that. But on the grand scheme, we have to remember that we are all on the receiving end, the beneficiaries of God's sovereign choice to harden and to mercy, right? And so we can't say, I will receive good from God and not bad in that sense right like job says uh who, who am i to say that why because i really would just only like all the mercy stuff that i get from all that why because the greatest thing that ever happened to you today that will ever happen to you if this was the end today and god took us home the greatest moment of your life is the fact that Jesus died on the cross for you and that that was accomplished. Why? Because he allowed the Israelites to be hardened. Thank you. <laughs> we should be grateful. And if it, if it requires God hardening so that we can receive the greatest blessing ever, who am I to shake my fist at heaven and complain to the potter as little wee clay? You know, that's the greatest thing. That God hardened so that Christ could come. And I ask you to consider what's more important, the right relationship, the right living. And I hope you're getting the reality that it's always about right relationship. Why? Because if you flip it around and you try to do right living, you're doing what? Legalism. <laughs> Trying to do it on your own. You don't have that right relationship first. And see, that's exactly what happened with the Gentiles and they're running after the law and their desire to keep the commandments in order to earn God's favor because it wasn't in relationship with God, which is what he always wanted. And the Israelites did run after and they did desire to keep the commandments in order to earn God's favor. Just like Abraham <laughs> tries to produce a son. Hey God, I know you're busy. So I'm gonna go ahead and shack up with Hagar and get this party started. I want a son. And when we usurp God's timing and avoid the pain of waiting, because it's not fun to wait, we miss the blessing and we continue to live a life of a slave. Why? Because you're constantly a slave to your own sin and your own will. And here's the worst part of it. <laughs> when we end up justifying it and say, yeah, but... You know, I was doing it because, you know, God said I was going to have a son like Abraham could have said. Oh, our sinful, wicked hearts. God help us to know and understand them in light of your great glory and your great will. So, verse 32. Why not? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were possible, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Look, laying in Zion, a stone going to cause people to stumble, a rock, it's going to make them fall. The one who believes in him, stumbling stone, will not be put to shame. And this verse here is a reminder not only of the immediate exception, uh, accepting or rejecting of Jesus on the cross, but it looks forward to the revealing, the revelation, because that word shame there always has to do with the end times. And that you're not going to be put to shame in the grand scheme and the big picture of things if you have God, if you have that glorying of God's name and making his name great in the final scheme of things. So why were the Israelites not able to retain, obtain their righteousness? Why? Because they rejected God's plan. All right. And that idea of being of a Messiah being crucified by the Israelites own hand, that was the stumbling stone. That's the rock of offense, right? To admit that Jesus was their own Messiah would end up requiring them to own up to shame of crucifying him. All right, so we have Christianity, a 
are we are we having issues with the the internet mm -hmm. we have christianity then because of this paradigm completely contrasted with every other religion in the world salvation by faith versus salvation by works and so paul pours out his heart in verse in chapter 10 brothers and sisters my heart's desire and prayer to god on behalf of my fellow israelites is for what their salvation for i can testify that they're zealous for god but what's the problem their zeal is not in line with the truth for ignoring the righteousness that comes from god and seeking instead to establish their own righteousness they did not submit to God's righteousness. For ignoring the righteousness that comes from God and seeking instead to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And don't you love this just simple little message here, back here on this verse, for their zeal is not in line with the truth. I mean, that should be a bumper sticker right there. Whenever I see that coexist bumper sticker, I, I think about this. Because that's a zealous message. Coexist. It's, you know, can't we all just get along? Well, you can't because actually every single one of those things is contrary to once. <laughs> every single one of those. No. We, it's not that I refuse to coexist. It's that that's untenable. That's not reality. That's zealous. It's the it's a sweet, thoughtful idea. I get your heart perhaps on this, but it's not in line with the truth at all. So Verse four, for Christ is the end of the law with the result that there is righteousness for everyone who believes. And so this, this verse has been a bit of a stumbling block for some also at the end of the law, Christ, the end of the law, Christ said he did not come to abolish the law. Okay. That's not what this is talking about. This is the, the end result of the law. It all fulfilled in him. It all came true in him. He is the, the end of where we are heading for the law with the result that there is righteousness for everyone who believes if it wasn't for Christ being that end, we would not have that righteousness. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law, the one who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, don't make it so complicated. Don't make it so complicated. This isn't you trying to figure out where, where Christ is or go down and, and get him out of the grave. You know, don't, don't make it more than it has to be. Why? Because what does it say? Verse eight, the word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. And from this point, that word preach, Paul right, right, just launches right into his passion from what he said at the very beginning of chapter nine. Why? What? That his people would know the word and they would receive their savior because if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and doesn't he exactly have that as his heart's passion for his brothers and sisters confess with your mouth that jesus is lord believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes and thus has righteousness and with the mouth one confesses and thus as salvation for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame there's that verse but there is no distinction between jew and greek there's not two paths there's not two plans there's not plan a plan b and you take the high road i'll take the low road we'll all get to no there is no distinction between jew and greek for the same lord is lord of all who richly blesses all who call on his name why because everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved and this was Exampled by Christ when he reminded everyone of the story of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. He says, look, everyone who chose to look at that serpent would be saved. There was nothing to do. You were sitting there dying in your sins, in your disease. All you had to do was look and do what? Believe. <laughs> That's all you had to do. And the entire history of man is, is just completely swamped up by all the things we think we have to do to get that to happen. And all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And it just seems too simple. It got, there's got to be more. Well, Paul talks about that. He goes, okay, yeah, there's some more. How are they to call on the one they have not believed in? And he just kind of unwinds and it ravels it all back. And how are they to believe in the one they have not heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach 
unless they are sent. And Paul just kind of gives us this whole like, oh yeah, we need to get this message out, Paul, because Paul is feeling the weight of the burden on himself and he's just one man. So he's reminding everyone who would hear his voice in that moment that this message needs to go forth by all of us. And just a, a word a little bit here to all of us on this idea of, and how are they to preach unless they are sent and the sent being associated in our minds as modern Western good Christian uh, missionaries, that's what we think of, and how are they to preach? Uh, you're thinking of maybe me or Pastor Joe or Pastor so-and-so and someone who's behind the pulpit gets paid to preach. And because also in our day and age, we love, well, like, you know, the little personality tests. If you take them on um, Facebook, it might be like, you know, which Disney princess are you? Yeah. <laughs> Answer these questions, right? Or what, what kind of potato are you? If you answer these questions, right? And we have them in the church as well. Like, what's your spiritual gift? Right? You answer all these different questions. So I'll, I'm going to pause right here real quick. So I'm, where I'm not going, I'm not going to, hey, those are bad tests. You should be taking those tests. Maybe not the Disney princess one, but the spiritual gift test, not bad. But here's the problem with them. Once we take a test like that, we say, well, I don't have the gift of preaching. Clearly, I have the gift of whatever you ended up with. Um, and so I guess I'm not going to be preaching. I'll save that to the vocational preacher, someone who clearly has that gift or evangelism or fill in the blank. So we've kind of used those spiritual gift tests as a way to say, I'm out. This is what I got to do. And I clearly I got the test. So I would just submit to you two things. Number one, chapter and verse me on that one. Okay. <laughs> there is no chapter and verse that would say uh, that's your spiritual gift or that it isn't. And uh, because the call is clear to all. Otherwise, Paul would have moved in on that and said, hey, to those who feel the calling to become preachers, I'm speaking to you now because you're the select few that God has chosen. No. So there's no, we all have that. Number one. Number two, second point on this one. It has been said, and I think it's a lovely idea, and I believe I understand the heart behind it. And again, I'm not going to move in and destroy your worldview, maybe a little, but it has been said that we should preach the gospel and use words if necessary. I find that unbiblical. Yep. It is anti, but this says right here, you have to use words to preach, turns out. So although it's a nice sentiment, and certainly we should live our lives so that the gospel can be seen and people would be curious about our faith without us even having opened our mouth. They should see by our clothing. They should see by the, the lifestyle in general that we live. That should present a curious gospel to them or they think, what's up with that? You're going to have to use words eventually. So let's not also then use that one as a reason why maybe I won't be preaching. So those are just two little, let's just, let's call them pet peeves <laughs> that I have on, on, on using scripture, I think, to kind of avoid getting the word out. All right. As it is written, how timely is the arrival of those who proclaim the good news? But <laughs> not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so Paul moves in on this, and he's, he kind of addresses this, again, pushback that people might have. Consequently, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes to the preached word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Yes, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But again, I ask, didn't Israel understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous by those who are not a nation, with a senseless nation, I will provoke you to anger. So here we have Paul addressing some excuses. Excuse number one, Israel didn't hear. Answer, yeah, they did. <laughs> the message went everywhere. And so you can sit there and rattle around in your brain, but maybe they didn't. Maybe there was some little person stuck in a cave somewhere. No, that will defy what God's word has said. They heard. And so we're going to have to say they, they heard. And excuse number two, Israel didn't understand. Oh, they heard, but they didn't really understand. It was just like when I sent home homework assignments with the kids and then the parents come back and say they didn't understand. I'm like, you have no idea. We spent like an hour and a half and I had visuals and a dance to explain it to them. They understood. So Israel did not understand answers. Well, the Gentiles believed. <laughs> and so he's using this as a reminder to say, look, Israel, who had like up close and personal relationship with God Almighty, they didn't understand. And somehow these pagan Gentiles did. Yeah, I don't think so. All right, so that's Paul 
maybe a little touch of sarcasm here, but a little bit of exasperation for sure. And Isaiah is even bold enough to say, listen, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I became well known to those who did not ask for me. You, You know, so yeah, they heard, they understood. The people weren't even seeking me, found me. So Israel, you have no excuse at all. But it, about Israel, he says, and this is where we just, oh, breaks his heart. He just says, all day long, I held out my hands to this disobedient and stubborn people. That's the heart of God. I have literally done everything possible to get the message through, and you have been hardened. So I will stiffen your hardness so I can make sure I can bring the Messiah, so I can reveal the mystery to all mankind, so everyone can come in. And still you'll be hardened, and you will be for a time. You will be for a time. Why? Because God's got some more work to do. And we're part of that. That's why I think it's a cop-out for any of us to say, well, I'm not a preacher. I can't get up. Maybe maybe not in front of a pulpit, but you should be sharing the word. You should be sharing it with your words, right? That's God's heart. And that should be our heart as well. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, I would wrap up and go right now, but I'm sure you're all dying to know what my lie is. Did I leave uh, survival nature walks through the wilderness? Yeah. Did I write and record albums of worship songs with Amy Grant? Yeah. Did, that before or after this did I present? Did I, was I presented with a key to a city in Mexico? No. <laughs> All right, what's my lie? Number two, I didn't record anything with Amy Grant. No, I think it's one. I think it's one. All right, so number one, uh, yeah, I, I lead and have led for many years um, survival nature walks. I studied ethnobotany. I love the study of that and how plants and people interact. And so if you ever are stuck on a walk with me somewhere, you might have me going, you want to know what that plant's for? <laughs> you can eat that, but that one will kill you. Oh, you want to get some fish dead and flipped up to the top of the water? Take this bush and smack it three times on the water and that'll kill the fish, so break the fish stun the fish enough to do that. You can walk down, yeah, just enough to be dangerous. Um, and uh, yeah, I wrote and recorded two albums of worship songs, but not with Amy Grant. Oh. Here I thought it was the Mexico key to the city. I, I would see. Yeah, but I do have the key to the city of Ensenada in Mexico. I, I did. I was a missionary there for several years, and uh, so the team that I was with, um, we uh, we were presented with the key. It's now at Westmont College, and uh, it doesn't get me anything. I you know, I can't really go into Ensenada with my big key. <laughs> I want more lobster. They have good lobster in Sonata. They're really good lobsters. So there we go.